Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, I know I'm not the first person to arrive at this opinion, but it seems to me that our society does not sufficiently value compassion and kindness. We seem to deeply value things like strength, speed, power, ambition, raw talent. You get a ton of respect and social capital if you have acquired, trained, or are naturally endowed with any of the above. To be clear, all of those things can be great, but why and how did compassion and kindness become nice-to-haves or soft skills instead of, holy shit, it's amazing you're good at that? My guest today is going to talk about how compassion is actually the ultimate tool, the ultimate life hack for the truly ambitious. Paul Gilbert is the founder of something called Compassion Focused Therapy. We talk a lot about compassion and also self-compassion on this show. It's one of my favorite topics. We get a huge audience response whenever we cover this on the show or over on the 10% Happier app. Paul's approach is slightly different from our much and deservedly ballyhooed former guests such as Kristen Neff and Chris Germer in that compassion-focused therapy is based in a psychotherapeutic model. In other words, it's a kind of psychotherapy. Anyway, Paul will explain that better than I am doing right now. A little bit more about Paul. He's also a professor at the University of Derby over in the UK, and in 2011 was awarded the Order of the British Empire, or OBE, from the Queen for his continued contribution to mental health care. He's also written books, including The Compassionate Mind, Living Like Crazy, I like that title, Overcoming Depression, and his latest, Compassion-Focused Therapy, Clinical Practice and Applications. In this conversation, we talk about what compassion-focused therapy actually is, why he says wisdom and courage are essential ingredients to compassion, some surprising truths about your inner critic, how compassion can be used to your advantage, even if, perhaps especially if, you're ambitious, the relevance of various meditation practices to cultivating compassion and what the science says about that, how trauma can impact our ability to access compassion and what you can do about it, and the importance of a part of the body called the vagus nerve, that's not like Las Vegas, the V-A-G-U-S nerve, and its relationship to compassion, mindfulness, and friendship. The discussion of the vagus nerve, by the way, makes this episode you're about to hear rhyme quite nicely with the one we dropped on Monday with Deb Dana, where we talked about how you can become what she calls an active operator of your own nervous system. If you missed that, go check it out. You don't have to have listened to it, though, in order to uh, listen to this one. Okay, we'll get started with Paul Gilbert right after this. But first, some uh, BSP, blatant self-promotion. Just to say real quick, don't forget to check out danharris.com, my new website where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I haven't been promoting that hard because we've been uh, honing it in the background. But um, now I really feel good about it. And uh, it's a place where I sum up the key learnings for me from the week's episodes and also make a bunch of cultural recommendations, whatever books and TV shows and movies I'm enjoying right now. Go check it out, danharris.com. We also have a new merch store where you can buy 10% Happier gear and also uh, some gear festooned with my profanity-laced slogans, danharris.com. Meanwhile, over on the 10% Happier app, from Monday, May 13th to Sunday, May 19th, we're going to be celebrating World Meditation Week with a whole series of free meditations available right there on the app. Every day, something new and unique designed to help beginners and seasoned meditators. And because we're so excited about it, we're going to be offering 40% off the subscription price until the end of May. Head over to 10percent.com slash 40. That's 10% spelled out, dot com slash 40 to get started. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but 
The data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Dr. Paul Gilbert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dan, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Likewise, likewise. Great to have you here. Let me just start with a very broad question, which is, what is compassion-focused therapy? Well, it sort of arose out of cognitive therapy in a way. Now, in cognitive therapy, what you do is you help people to identify a sequence of thoughts and beliefs that are associated with the problems that they're facing. So people who are anxious tend to have anxious thoughts and people who are depressed tend to have depressing thoughts. And so if somebody has a set of depressing thoughts, like I'm a failure, I'm no good, the future is hopeless, you help them stand back from that and begin to think of maybe alternatives about what would they say to a friend or how would they see the situation if they went depressed? Uh, Could they think of a more balanced view and so on? And that can work pretty well. I work with people who had severe depressions and chronic depressions. For those individuals for whom it didn't work so well, I was kind of intrigued about that. And one day I asked this lady who had been adopted and she had this idea she shouldn't have been born. She wasn't lovable, but she'd had a good relationship with her husband. She had three lovely children and so on. I said, well, when you think about looking at alternative thoughts and thinking about the fact, well, you've got a husband who cares about you. You've made a good marriage. You've got three lovely children. How do you actually hear these thoughts in your mind, you know? How do you actually hear them? And um, she was a little embarrassed. I said, well, speak them out as you actually hear them. And she said, okay. Come on, you're doing cognitive therapy, aren't you? You got a husband who cares about you? You got three lovely children? And that was my first shock to discover that actually part of the problem was the hostility in the tone, all right? The tone, the emotional experience was one of quite a lot of hostility and contempt. Now, nobody had told me to look for the emotion in the alternative thoughts, right? So I started to look for that, and lo and behold, that turned out quite commonly, that people would have very good coping thoughts, they would be able to challenge some of their negative thoughts, but the emotional tone that they experienced was pretty hostile. So a natural thing to do was just to help people to really focus not only on re-evaluating their thoughts, but actually creating a compassionate motive and a compassionate tone, a friendly, kind tone, right? So that should have been straightforward, except it wasn't. So this lady said, absolutely not. I'm not doing that. I can't see how that's going to help me. You've got to force me into believing these alternative thoughts. So she didn't want to do it. She couldn't see that was very easy to do. And the third shock was, which in a way, I think I was quite naive. I should have appreciated this, is that when we started to do compassion, we opened up an Aladdin's cave of trauma, probably the wrong analogy. But the point about it is, is that if you have trauma in any kind of motivational system, right? So supposing you like holidays, you love holidays, isn't it wonderful? And then one day you go on holiday and you get very badly beaten up. The next time the concept holidays are triggered for you, you won't remember all the good times. The first thing that will hit you will be the trauma. So people who have been traumatized in childhood, for example, neglect or abuse, whatever, the moment they start to do compassion work, caring work, they're going to whack into that caring system. That caring system, that motivational system has trauma memories in it. That's what they start to experience. So when they try to be compassionate to themselves, they actually start to become frightened or they become overwhelmed by grief and sadness. And so a lot of compassion-focused therapy really is about facilitating the ability for people to use a caring system for themselves and for others 
And so that's basically how it started. Over the years, we've been guided by our clients and our patients who've shown us how difficult it is and really difficult for some people to have compassion for themselves. That's fascinating. Let me see if I can restate some of that back to you, and then you can tell me where I mess it up. So you were initially interested in cognitive therapy, sometimes called cognitive behavioral therapy. It is a cognitive or sort of intellectual process where you learn to challenge some of these unskillful thought patterns, habitual patterns, storylines that we can run. You notice after a while that for some people, they could learn to muster the counter-programming thoughts to challenge their old, not-so-helpful storylines. But when you honed in on the tone of the thoughts they were using to challenge the old, unhelpful thoughts, that tone in and of itself was unhelpful because it was, as you said, hostile. So you try to hack that by changing the tone to a more compassionate one and to install a sort of compassionate motive, I think you use the term, so that people are intentionally trying to comfort themselves. The problem then was that when people tried to tap into their mammalian care system, that was bringing up a lot of trauma. Perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's so rare. So for people who don't have trauma, I'm, I think I'm lucky enough to say that I certainly wasn't abused or neglected as a child. Would compassion-focused therapy just be an easier process? It can be. I mean, there are other reasons why people can be a bit resistant to it or find it difficult. For example, individuals who are very competitive and feel that driving and succeeding and so forth, they can be a little bit cautious about compassion because they think, well, yeah, but maybe I'm going to lose my ambition, I'm going to lose my edge, and so on. You can have all kinds of other reasons why people will struggle with compassion, but generally the ones that really struggle are the ones that have had uh, childhood difficulties, but you know, other people can have difficulties too with compassion. What is the move when you're confronted with one of these difficulties, such as the arising of ancient trauma or the arising of resistance based in ambition. Those are two separate questions, and I suspect two separate sets of tools you want to use to help people get over these humps. And you can take it in whatever order you would like, but what do you do when people bump up against these challenges? A number of different things. One is really clarification about what we mean by compassion, because there is quite a lot of different views about what compassion is. Now, in our approach to compassion, we have an evolutionary approach and we help clients recognize that caring behavior evolved over hundreds of millions of years. And basically it's an algorithm. And in the attachment system, what happens is that the mother evolves a capacity to be sensitive to the needs and distress of their infant, whatever species it is. That sensitivity then triggers behavior. So, for example, if the infant, you know, it could be a bird or a monkey or whatever, if that infant needs feeding, then the mother will feed it. If it needs rescuing, the mother will rescue it. If the distress call is because it's cold and needs thermal regulation, then the mother will take it close to its body. So caring behavior then involves this capacity to be sensitive to signals of distress and need. And we know that that evolved with a whole series of physiological systems to do with what is called the vagus nerve, which is part of your autonomic nervous system. But also that once you are sensitive and triggered, then you also have to behave appropriately. Now, one of the interesting things about that is that if you kind of look at that process of what caring is about, the sensitivity to distress, to triggers appropriate behavior to alleviate and prevent it, that algorithm can actually be quite complex. So you're wanting to help people Firstly, recognize how are you sensitive to your distress? Are you able to be empathic to it? And we also highlight the fact that actually the two key things of compassion are courage and wisdom. Because without courage, you're not going to go anywhere near distress, are you? I mean, so if you think about a firefighter, for example, who is sensitive to distress and will go and rescue people, they need both wisdom and courage. So wisdom and courage really are central to what compassion is. So helping people understand that is really quite crucial. So helping them understand there's two aspects to compassion. Firstly, how they are sensitive to their suffering and their needs or difficulties, and then how they work out the wisdom of what's going to be helpful to them. So the point is compassion can't be unhelpful because that wouldn't be very wise. <laughs> 
if I see somebody fall into a fast flowing river and I think I must save them. So I jump in. So that's, that's okay. But then I can't swim and I've got my Wellington boots on. So I sink like a stone. That's not very helpful. So Courage without wisdom can be reckless, and uh, wisdom without courage can be ineffective. And so we have quite a lot of discussions around this issue. We use examples of of a firefighter or somebody fighting injustice. What combines all of these activities is the motivation to address suffering. And that motivation has to be based on courage and wisdom. So we do quite a lot of that stuff with people, and then we help them understand that, okay, so what would be the courage and wisdom of compassion that would actually help you be at your best, right? be it your sharpest. If you want to be ambitious, be it your most ambitious. But at the same time, have an ambition which is not about harming others. In the CFT, you have to also be aware of your impact on other people, which is very crucial. So it's not just about you pursuing your own ambition, but the consequences of your ambition on other people. So from our point of view, courage and wisdom are the two things we really promote in CFT, and that tends to get around some of the confusions about what compassion is. Well, at least stay with the ambitious person, because I can identify. To drill down on this a little bit, somebody comes to you and says, I get it, I'm beating myself up, and it's degrading my resiliency, it's degrading the quality of my life, I'm taking it out on other people. It's putting me frequently into what a friend of mine calls the toilet vortex, where I'm mean to myself, and then I'm mean to other people, and because our relationships are so important, meaner to myself, and then meaner to other people, and then down you go. So I get it. I get what you're saying, Dr. Gilbert, but I need this self-laceration because I have a really competitive career. And if I take my foot off the gas, if I stop liberally applying the internal cattle prod, my competitors will eat me alive. What do you say in those moments? That's a brilliant example, because that's exactly the kind of thing that happens. That people think that if they stop being critical, they will take their foot off the pedal, right? And so part of what we help people realize is that's actually not the case. Now, if you'll forgive me, I can take you through a little example of this. So we would say to people, okay, so look, I tell you what, tell us one of these things, right, that you're critical about. And we say, okay, I would like you to spend a little bit of time just imagining you can see your critic. So we get them to do a little meditation of they can see the critic outside of themselves. And then we invite them to just to listen to the critic. What does the critic say to you? So we do that for a little bit, you know, a minute or two, not too long. And then we invite them to explore what does the critic actually feel about you? And then they get into that. And then what was the critic want to do to you? Now, when we take people through this process, actually often people are very, very shocked by what they discover. That often the critic has this rather harsh appearance. Sometimes people even see, you know, witches or sharp, objects or all kinds of things can represent the critic. And typically, the critic, when you let it go, uh, what does it actually think about you? It's pretty nasty. It'll say, you're stupid, you messed up, you're you're useless, you're never going to do anything, you know, you're just a fake you are. And the emotion of the critic is, again, very hostile. And often what they want to do to you is to push you, beat you into (laughs) whatever it is. So when you actually invite people to, okay, let's really explore this critic. Let's see, is this critic really going to help you? Does it really help you? When they spend some time really sitting with the critic, exploring the critic, it's not unconscious, but getting sort of slightly below the surface of what this critical system is about. Again, they run into this recognition that it's intense hostility. And then we say to them, okay, so how does that inspire you? How does that encourage you? How does that help you deal with setbacks? How does it pick you off the floor? How does it take pleasure in your success? Okay, how does it give you joy and excitement to do better? Well, it doesn't, does it really? I mean, once you've done this exercise, you realize that actually, you know, you keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. But sooner or later, you're going to crash because you're not using the right motivational system. So then we say, okay, well, let's use a different motivational system rather than a fear and rage system and an attacking system. So let's see how a compassion system would take your values, take what you want, and inspire you and help you. And so that if you do something and you fall over and it doesn't work out, how will it pick you up and help you learn from the experience so you can do better next time? Now, it may well be that as you go through that process, your values may change or they may not, but that will be up to you. But the key thing is helping people realize that the vicious critics are coming from what we call the threat system 
Whereas if you switch out of that into a compassion system, you're using a different set of brain systems, which are there really to inspire, encourage, and support. And those actually are much more likely to help you to achieve your goals in a way which is not harmful to other people as well. So your values may change slightly as you go along, you know, they may soften down a little bit, but your joy and your happiness will be much better. So if you're really ambitious, then it is to your advantage to see that it is a cleaner burning, more effective fuel to use an inner coach than an inner drill sergeant. Yeah, yeah. Because what happens is, you see, part of the problem is the vicious critic is sitting on a lot of fear. A lot of the harsh, critical, ambitious individuals are absolutely scared of not doing well because then they get rejected, then they will be nobody, then they'll be left on the side of the road, right? So underneath uh, hostile criticism is usually all kinds of fears of rejection, not being good enough, not being wanted. And that is linked to various problems, as you can imagine. So when you're working clinically, we don't tend to work too much with the critic itself. We work with the fears that sit underneath it. Okay, supposing you can't reach your ambition, what are you most frightened of? What is your greatest fear of actually saying, okay, I'm not good enough? Supposing that's the truth. What would really worry you about that? And usually, not always, but usually it comes down to the, a sense of isolation. Usually, if you ask people to imagine themselves in a state of not being good enough, they nearly always imagine themselves being alone. They never or very rarely imagine themselves. Of people say, oh, we'd come around you, we'd support you, we'd be there. We'd say, oh, we're just like you, you know, <laughs> we're failures too. People very rarely imagine that. Usually, if you ask them, give me an image of yourself as a failure, it's nearly always an alone, miserable person. That's what they've got in their mind. That's what they're running from. And the compassion goes to that part of working with the underlying fears that's driving this hostility. Because the hostility is coming from threat, you see. So what is the threat? Coming up, Paul's gonna explain how to move from the threat system to the care system. And he'll dive into some meditation practices that can increase your capacity for compassion. That's after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. I'm going to say something that I've said before on the show. I apologize for being repetitive, but I, I'm saying it because I it's relevant and I want to hear what you think about this riff of mine. There is this idea in Western 
individualistic society of slaying your dragons. And that would perhaps apply to something like the inner critic. The Western approach might be a kind of a hostile one of, you know, I'm going to face this inner critic down and vanquish them. What I've seen over time is that that doesn't work. The hostility just makes everything worse. But if you shift your view of the inner critic, and I have, like many people, quite prominent one, if you shift your view to see that, well, this is just a warped expression of self-love, self-compassion, it is the organism trying to protect itself. It is sort of an ancient, unskillful set of inner habits we've developed to help ourselves survive. Seeing it in that light, then instead of trying to slay the dragon, you can high-five the dragon. And then the whole system kind of calms down. The whole nervous system, in my experience, calms down with that approach, especially in meditation. So am I full of garbage or does that make sense to you? <laughs> no, no, absolutely right. The only thing I would add to that is you're quite right. If you try and slay your dragon, you're staying in the threat system. You're using the fight system to subdue the fight system biologically that's what you're trying to do and that won't work because you, you can't do that and the point is even if you succeed today if you get depressed tomorrow you'll find your critic will just bounce back at you even harder so that doesn't work so you're quite right you need to move out of the system you need to get out of that brain system altogether, and that's why we move into the care system so what are you going to care for you're going to care for what is driving your critic right so what's driving your critic is these underlying fears or concerns or whatever. And you're quite right that criticism is usually a response to those fears. You know, you have to succeed, you have to achieve, because if you don't, and that's the issue, if you don't, that's the thing we go after. So one of the things you can do is that you can imagine the critic in front of you and then imagine you as the compassionate self. You move around the side of the critic, almost like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, and you think, what is driving this critic? What has hurt it? What has injured it? You know, this part of me is an injured, frightened part that's actually literally having panic attacks. We never work directly with the critic. We always try to heal it in a sense. And as I say, get around the back of it and see where it starts. But the problem is, as you say, we're so far away from hunter-gatherer societies where we were just accepted in our communities as we were. We have a society that drives us. Otherwise, to see ourselves is not good enough. That we're caught up in this very hostile world, really. You seem to be referencing some sort of practice that one could use in order to sort of create a different relationship to the inner critic. Was I hearing you correctly? Were we referencing a practice? And was that something one does in dialogue with a therapist or a solo meditation practice that one can do? There are a number of practices, actually. But one of the things is you want to use the body to support the mind. One of the practices is using posture where you sit with your shoulders back and open chest to allow you to do what is called soothing rhythm breathing, a breathing pattern which stimulates the vagus nerve because when your critic's going, then you're stimulating your sympathetic nervous system. So that's not terribly good. So you do a breathing pattern, which is we use a very basic pattern, which is five second breaths, two second pauses, five seconds out. So you, you're breathing with your diaphragm and you're imagining the breath going down to the base of your spine. So we're getting the body into a position where it can begin to stimulate the compassion motivational system. And that also involves things like your frontal cortex, oxytocin, and so on. So the next thing then is there are certain kinds of images and certain kinds of uh, ways of focusing your mind then to stimulate these physiological systems. Now, the fact that you can stimulate physiological systems by what you imagine is quite profound. Humans can do this, but we don't always use it particularly well. <laughs> For example, look, if you're very hungry and you see a meal, this will stimulate your hypothalamus, it gets saliva and your stomach acids will go. But if you don't have any money, you could just imagine a meal, couldn't you? And then the same thing would happen. If you're critical, guess what? You stimulate the same systems in your brain as if somebody else is being critical to you. And so when it comes to compassion and caring, if you learn to practice certain kinds of compassion images and compassion focuses, what happens is you're stimulating particular brain systems, which will help you to stimulate those systems which are conducive to well-being and conducive to confidence and conducive to actually being able to deal with the critic. So you're bringing all these things together. You're helping people realize that the critic is rooted in the threat system. Then you say, okay, so we want a different system to work with. So then we stimulate the care system. 
by stimulating the physiological processes and some of the brain systems. And then when you have that state of mind, now you are ready to engage with the critical process. So I think I understood the deep breathing part. You call it soothing rhythm breathing. And the point there is to activate the parasympathetic nervous system instead of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight, flight, or flee nervous system. So I I think that part makes sense. You're just calming the whole system down. You called it vagal breathing, which is a reference to the vagus nerve. You also referenced a second practice that involved a kind of harnessing of the imagination. Can you say more about the basic blocking and tackling, the sort of how-to aspect of this imagination-based practice or practices? Yes. So there's two basic practices, really. One is imagining dialoguing with a compassionate other. And the other is imagining yourself as a compassionate being. Now, as you probably know, in the Buddhist traditions, there are quite a lot of practices which involve meditating around the Buddha. So one of them, for example, is where you imagine the Buddha in the center of the universe emanating compassionate wishes that may all sentient beings be free of suffering the causes of suffering. So you imagine that. And then you imagine that as a sentient being, you are the recipient of that, of this loving kindness, this eminence that's coming from the center of the universe. And then you imagine that you fuse with the Buddha and then you imagine that you are the Buddha and you are them. So this process of giving and receiving, that's an example of a practice which is really quite an important practice of receiving compassion. What we have done in sort of modification of that, if you want to say that, is we invite people to kind of start to imagine what a compassionate figure would be for them. You know, what qualities would they have? Would they be male? Would they be female? Would they be older? Would they be younger? How would they be empathic to you? What would it like to feel that there is this other mind, this other being that is very empathic to you and cares about you? And of course, you often run into lots of resistances. <laughs> I can't do that. I don't know. So you have to work through that. And that's the process of practice. of just practicing, imagining, receiving from this compassionate mind. The, the wisdom of compassion that we use is that all of us have just found ourselves here. Nobody chose to be here. We're all basically DNA-created beings. And so your compassionate other, your compassionate wise being that you're relating to understands that. That can be quite a powerful meditation. And there are all kinds of variations of it. You can ask people, what would happen if you changed the gender of your compassionate other? Would that be easy or would you resist it? And what does it mean? What would that mean if you didn't want that? And then the next thing is you imagine yourself having all of the qualities of compassion that are important to you. So imagine yourself, you have a great wisdom about the nature of life that we've all just found ourselves, everything's impermanent, a great wisdom about the nature of friendliness, all those ideal qualities that you would say, if I could be like that, that would be my ideal compassionate self. And then the next thing is you simply practice them. So walking down the street, you remember to practice friendliness because if you smile at somebody and they smile back at you, you've actually given them a little buzz of dopamine. You've given them just a touch of a good feeling. And there's another wonderful thing to do. There's a lot of practices about how we support moving towards becoming this ideal self. So all of these practices really are things that we do in order to harness and develop the capacities within our own mind to live a compassionate life. And a lot of the work that's going on at the moment on neuroplasticity and how your brain is changed by practices show that you can change your brain through these practices, through certain meditations. You know, loving-kindness meditations has an impact on your brain. So there's quite a few of these practices that can help us. But for some people, relating to a compassionate other can be quite powerful for them. I'm curious, you've made a reference to some of the resistance some people might feel when you describe these practices. I certainly, when I first heard about loving-kindness practice, thought, well, well, this is ridiculous. This is just so forced, so sappy. There's no way I'm going to do this. I don't feel that way at all now. But I think there are a lot of people, even people who've done quite a bit of meditation practice, often I find that these are men who really just can't get over the hump to do these practices because they feel it's forced and cheesy or artificial or whatever. And I'm curious in your practice, 
when you hear folks articulate a resistance, what do you say to help them get over the hump? Well, the first thing is to explore what the fear is about it. So, okay, supposing it's cheesy, why does that worry you? What difference does it make? You're always dropping into what sits underneath the resistance. And sometimes you have to go two or three levels down. The second thing is you say, well, do you think imagery is any use at all? And they often say, no, I can't see it. And I say, okay, next time you're thinking of something sexual, just remind yourself that you were using imagery to get yourself aroused, right? And what would happen if today I stopped you I took out your capacity. You could never, ever imagine anything sexual ever again. How would you be with that? And they say, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) That would be terrible. See, the point is imagery is incredibly powerful. It's very, very powerful. So yes, loving kindness, you could say, is a little bit cheesy, but you're using it like you use an exercise bike. You're stimulating systems in your brain. You know, you don't get on an exercise bike and paddle for 20 minutes and then say, this is ridiculous, I haven't gone anywhere. Because you know what you're doing it for. You're doing it to stimulate systems in your brain. You're doing it to create feelings and so forth. So yes, of course, it is completely cheesy. That's absolutely fine. But it's very powerful. It's a very powerful cheesy. Yes. No, I agree. I often quote a meditation teacher whose name I don't know, who said to some student, if you can't be cheesy, you can't be free. And again, for me, coming at this from a very specific perspective of privileged, ambitious, straight white guy, you know, and I often think about how to reach other people like me because we have so much power and often are doing so much damage on the planet. You know, I think speaking as the Buddha did to the pleasure centers of the brain, to the ambitious part and saying, look, just as you did, caring may not be something that some people value, especially ambitious people, but we evolved to be caring. It is right there at the heart of the survival of the species. So if you want to be happy and successful, you will work on this. So I like that approach to speak to the truly, truly skeptical. Another approach is a lot of Skeptical people really like big challenges. They'll climb up a rock face. They'll ski down very treacherous slopes, take on big professional projects that are daunting. You have referenced several times that if you want to do this work, you're going to have to look at the leviathan of fear that is lurking beneath many of our behaviors. And that requires courage, which is an appealing quality, I think, even to skeptics. Yes, very much so. I mean, I think it's a brilliant point you make because, you know, we work with veterans and there are two types of courage, right? It's physical courage and there's emotional courage. And we, unfortunately, guys aren't, they might be very good with physical courage, okay? They risk their lives to save you, but they might not be very good with emotional courage. They're not very good at tolerating intense emotional pain. And they can be quite surprised at that. And one of the veterans we work with in the group said, you know what? I had the courage to die, but not to cry. And that was really important because he'd seen his friends blown up and that sort of thing. So helping him to bring the concept of compassion and allowing him to really seriously grieve, he found that very very tough because he wasn't used at all of dealing with very powerful emotions. So sometimes these guys are sitting on a, a quite serious grief and they don't want to go anywhere near that because, again, Crying for them is a sign of weakness and also because it's physically dangerous. I mean, when you cry, you can't see, you can't breathe, you lose muscle control. And these guys, they just feel very vulnerable. So emotional courage, I think, is extremely important. And we just don't teach guys emotional courage. We just don't. This brings me back to the subject you, you raised really at the beginning of the conversation, which is trauma and how doing this work can bring up a bunch of trauma for people, whatever gender. And I want to give you a chance to say a little bit more about, because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who fall into this category. What are the ways to work with trauma when it comes up while doing compassion-focused therapy or any kind of contemplative work in this zone of compassion? Well, it's a great, great question. I mean, ideally, obviously, you would work with somebody, a therapist or whatever, who would guide you through and support you through it, rather than trying to do it by yourself. So that's the first thing. This journey into trauma is easier if you have somebody who will be there with you and support you. Sometimes that can be doing it with people who have been through the same thing that you, you have, and they can guide you through and so forth. When it comes to trying to work 
by yourself on your own, things are a little bit more tricky. But if you take it step by step, if you go very slowly, if you realize or recognize that it's not to expose yourself to it all in one go, but just acknowledge that you have trauma in this area and then practice developing your grounding in your body, your breathing, practice focusing on generating a kind, understanding voice in your mind so that when you actually begin to work with a trauma, you have that sense of inner supportiveness that will help you with the trauma. The other thing is being clear about how these trauma memories work and what thoughts might come with those traumas. Any shame that's associated with a trauma, again, That is something that you can begin to think about and to look at criticism that's associated with the trauma. Just noticing if when you have these experiences, you also become very hostile to yourself. But the key thing is just to never go faster than your body is ready to let you go, as it were. Just take it easy. Slight problem is that when you actually get underneath trauma, there's also always a lot of grief. I mean, in our work, you've always got the big three Firstly, there's the anger, then there's the anxiety, then there's the grieving. Those three main emotions are often what you have to work through in the case of trauma. And the ability to work through those three emotions, but holding a compassionate orientation, so you're compassionate to your anger, you're compassionate with your fear, you're compassionate with your grief, is the way in which you can gradually ease your way through. Coming up, Paul explains the two different kinds of shame the benefits compassion can have for everybody around you, and what all of this has to do with the vagus nerve. That's coming up. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. What evidence do you have that CFT, Compassion Focus Therapy, or just compassion practices generally actually work? How strong is the science here? It's pretty good. Richie Davidson and his colleagues in Wisconsin done quite a lot of studies on loving kindness and so on. And we've got, I think, over 100 studies now looking at the effectiveness of compassion-focused therapy in different conditions, and the data is pretty good. I'm not going to say it's magic because it isn't, but I think it's helpful. And it can be integrated to other therapies like, you know, specialist trauma therapy. We would argue if you can bring a compassion orientation to that journey into trauma, then it will help people. So we've got studies showing that if you add compassion into standard therapies, that can help. But also some of the compassionate stuff standalone can be really quite helpful as well. Not for everybody, but for quite a few people. 
I believe, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, that there's some evidence too that if you can develop a compassionate attitude toward yourself, it will actually impact the way you are with other people. Oh, very much so. Absolutely very much so, yes, yes. Because you're less vulnerable to rejection, you're less vulnerable to criticism from others. It doesn't bother you so much now, and so you can be much more open, much lighter, much more playful. You know, there's quite a lot of evidence coming through now that in hunter-gatherer societies, one of the things that bound them together was playfulness. And if you look at some of these societies, if you do the anthropology, you find that they laugh a lot and they smile a lot. And that's often when we are at our happiest, when we are out with friends and we're just having a good time. We like to have a good time. We like to tell jokes. We like to share stories. So when you are comfortable with yourself and then you're comfortable with others, that allows you then to engage in this much more playful way of being in the world, rather than always thinking you've got to defend yourself because at any moment somebody will put you down. And you also you take, a, as you mentioned yourself, you take more of an interest in the well-being of others around you. So those two things, you become more playful, you become gentler, and you become more interested in other people, that all makes for a much better way of being. My meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, has said that one way to think about the process of enlightenment is becoming less self-centered. Exactly. Buddha's self-centeredness is fear. When people are no longer frightened of being rejected, they feel inherently lovable. They might not be loved, but they feel inherently lovable. And I don't mean the narcissistic pretense that I'm lovable, I'm great, I'm wonderful. That's a narcissistic defense, because I don't mean that. But I mean when there's a genuine sense of that. And there's something about the nature of interconnectedness, the nature of being in the universe, as it were, which is profoundly moving to people. I mean, it really does connect them to our true nature. You probably know these analogies, these lovely stories. There's um, two waves rushing across the Pacific to the Big Sur on California, and the big wave says to the little wave, oh, it's all going to end, you know. <laughs> there's, there's rocks ahead, we're going to be smashed, there's foam everywhere, it's disaster, it's terrible. And the little wave says, no, no, it's, uh, we're absolutely fine, we're fine, we're just on the journey. And the big wave says, that's because you can't see what I can see. And the little wave says, yeah, but you see, you're not a wave, you're water. And that's that sense, that this concept of this individuality. Basically, you're a consciousness that's experiencing a biological form, right? You've got this DNA, blah, blah, blah. That was built for you, you didn't build it. But there's a consciousness that flows through it. So you are conscious of nature's body, really, the body that nature has created for you. But is that it then? And so the big debate, isn't it, in physics and in all the areas at the moment, is is consciousness a biological creation or is a biological creation tapping into the field of consciousness? Now, in the Buddhist tradition, it's the latter. And that tends to be the decision I take. So when you begin to get that sense of interconnectedness, whether you do it through some of the ways in which we work or whether you do it through deep meditation, it allows you to reduce your fear, you know, your fear of separation, your fear of loneliness, your fear of abandonment. It settles down. It's pleasantly head spinning, pleasantly vertiginous to hear you talk about being water rather than wave and the this sort of wisdom around interconnection. We've talked a lot about fear. You've talked a lot about fear. You mentioned anger as well, sadness. What about shame as something that blocks us from tapping into this deeper stuff that is quite attractive when we think about it? There's what we call external shame and internal shame. So external shame is where you're very sensitive to how other people think about you, what's going on in the mind of the other. And therefore, you behave in a ways that you do not want to stimulate their criticism of you. There is another route to this, though, which is called humiliation, and that's much more dangerous. That is, if people do seem to shame you or criticize you, you will attack them. Whereas internal shame is linked to this process of self-criticism that we said, the sense of feeling inferior, there's something wrong with me, I'm flawed, I'm this or that. So internal shame, then you're back into the same processes that we talked about earlier about understanding what that's about. So shame can be, it's a serious inhibitor, really. It's such a sad thing. You know, people are very frightened to reveal what they think or people often won't go to therapy because they're very ashamed about what they might reveal. So it's, it is a bit of a, a tragedy shame. We've had on this show several of the academics who are, like you, very much associated with compassion, particularly I'm referring now to self-compassion, like Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, both two academics, both have been on the show. 
What, if any, differences are there between your view of compassion and theirs? Well, Christine, as you know, kind of developed her approach through personal experience. She had some personal tragedies in her life. And so she worked out what was helpful to her. And she has a set of ideas that compassion is linked to kindness and uh, common humanity and uh, mindfulness. And that's a very practical approach to compassion. And it's been incredibly helpful to a lot of people. Our approach, on the other hand, is an evolutionary approach that has two components to it, which is the ability to be sensitive to suffering and then the wisdom of working out what to do. So that's slightly different. We would emphasize things like empathic engagement. We would emphasize things like distress tolerance. But, you know, our form of compassion has been developed in the clinics with people who've got quite severe mental health problems, whereas Christian's has been developed for self-help primarily and with Chris Goma. So they are slightly different models, but they're pursuing the same aim, which is to release people from the tyrannies of self-criticism and and so on. So when you say Germer and Neff are aimed more at self-help, you mean, as opposed to your work with people with serious mental illness, that Germer and Neff might be for sort of the broader swaths of the population, the worried well, as opposed to the folks with, you know, pathology that is truly derailing their lives. I mean, I've never fallen for the phrase, the worried well. Most people are worried sick, actually, in this day and age. But her books are really aimed at the general public and to be helpful to the general public. And they now have trainings, you know, eight-week training courses for people to become mindful, compassionate trainers, right? took me 10 years to become a clinician. It's complicated stuff. They would not present that as a deep form of psychotherapy. They wouldn't present it that way. They would present it to help people Uh, in everyday life who are battling with things like self-criticism or have the ups and downs and the disappointments and the frustrations of life, right? And how to come through some of the sufferings that we all sometimes have to go through. So, you know, they've done terrific in bringing the concept of compassion to the general audience, I think, in a way that we hadn't. What is the vagus nerve and why is it important? Why should we care? Okay, so you have what is called an autonomic nervous system, and this is connected to all the organs of your body, right? So your heart and your lungs and the release of sugars and your pancreas and all kinds of things, right? So signals are sent from your brain down through your autonomic nervous system. So, for example, you're going to have to change what your organs are doing if you need to take action, if you need to run away from a lion or something like that, or you need to fight, or you need to get excited, you need the organs of your bodies to give you energy. So it will put up your heart rate, you'll release glucose in your body, you'll tighten up your guts, you won't be digesting at that point because you need to kind of focus on action. So the sympathetic nervous system is really the action system. It's like the accelerator on your car. It can drive both positive and negative emotions, actually. Anything where there's an activation. So if you win the lottery and you you get very wealthy, hundreds of millions of dollars, you will certainly have sympathetic activation, but you'll be very excited. The parasympathetic system, on the other hand, is more of the braking system. If you just kept you know, being aroused and aroused and aroused. Sooner or later, your organs would all get burnt out, you know. So the parasympathetic system really does exactly the opposite of the sympathetic system. Sympathetic system speeds up your heart, whereas the parasympathetic slows it down, okay? So what happens then is that this system of slowing down, it also gives you a sense of settling and calming. And it's called the vagus nerve. Vagus means vagabond, basically, wandering. It wanders all over the body. And it's connected to lots of different organs. So when you breathe more quickly, (laughs) what will happen is you'll stimulate your sympathetic nervous system and you get lightheaded, right? But if you slow your breathing down, say five seconds for each breath and two seconds stop and five seconds out, nice smooth in, smooth out, you'll find that you'll feel more heavier in your body. You'll feel more grounded. You can feel the chair holding you up. So the way we breathe has a major impact on sympathetic nervous system. But when we slow the breathing, then we stimulate the vagus. When we stimulate the vagus, we get the sense of grounding, settling, calming. And we also know that the vagus improves with mindfulness. When you do mindfulness, that's also very good for the vagus. And the vagus is also stimulated by friendship. So 
for example, imagine that you have to go to a party, you don't know anybody, but you've got to go because it's a work party. And then you walk through the door and you see your best friend and you see the friendship on their face. Oh, hi. That will immediately stimulate your vagus. So you'll immediately change your anxiety to one from your emotions run from anxiety to one from joyfulness, right? And that will that that switch will be because the friendship has stimulated the vagus nerve. So when you do your meditations, what we invite people to do is to also always produce a, a gentle face because that also is connected to your vagus. So the vagus really is a very important part of your autonomic nerve systems that facilitates grounding, it facilitates friendliness, it facilitates calming of the mind, it also has an impact on the default mode in your brain and so on. And these exercises are really quite important to get your vagus working for you. I'm curious what your level of optimism is about the state of the world, because it seems like the vagus nerve of the species is insufficiently activated. The sympathetic nervous system is just in modern life aroused all the time, which oddly makes us quite unsympathetic, quite uh, a lack of empathy and compassion abroad in the land. And so when you survey the news or, or just take a look around you in your own world, what is your optimism level about the future of the species? I'm very optimistic. Firstly, you're quite right. I mean, we are grossly overstimulated. The dopamine system, the, the sympathetic nervous system is grossly overstimulated through the media, through television, through, you know, all television now has to excite you. We know that a lot of the entertainments have become more violent over the last 30 years, all in the service of entertainment. So there are some serious worries about that, quite rightly so. But equally, you know, if you think about where we were two or three hundred years ago, we're a much more compassionate society than we were then. Still got huge steps to take. Of course we have. You know, if you look at the big picture, actually, people are becoming more sensitive to creating a compassionate world. We've got a lot of pressures pulling us back from it. I quite agree with you. And the politics, you know, we do a lot of work with a group called Compassion in Politics. The politics and the media, those two things together are rather pulling this in the opposite direction because they've just become a, you know, a Punch and Judy show, which is not really about solving the problems of the world. But I think humanity is becoming more interested in generating compassionate solutions. You know, people are taking more interest in climate change and particularly in the schools and the children. Mindfulness, as you know, is gradually creeping into the schools. Compassion training is gradually creeping into the schools. And these are all wonderful signs, really, I think, for the future. But for sure, we've got some very serious pulls in the opposite direction. It's a pretty good place to leave it. Before I let you go, Dr. Gilbert, for people who want to learn more about you, maybe access some of these practices that you've referenced, read some of your books, can you just go into shameless self-promotion mode and talk about your books and any other resources that are available publicly? Yes. Yeah, so basically, if you want to uh, find out anything about us, it's www.compassionatemind, that's one word, .co.uk. And there's Lots and lots of materials on there. There are exercises and practices you can go to. You can find out about the books and the papers and the research that we're doing there. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can contact me through that organization. And uh, if you go on to Amazon and, you know, or wherever and put in Paul Gilbert Compassion, you'll, you'll get a few books coming up for you as well. It was a pleasure to chat with you. And so I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks again to Paul. Really also want to thank my friend and colleague, Caroline Keenan, who gave us the idea to bring Paul on the show. Thank you, Caroline. And finally, I also want to thank everybody who worked so hard to make this show a reality. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. And also, of course, our friends over at Ultraviolet Audio who do our audio engineering. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation on self-compassion from my friend, and teacher Alexis Santos. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.